I'm doing it again. Oh, goodness, there we go. All right, our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 29, verse 31, through, well, a little ways longer. Um, There's going to be a lot of babies that are born in this section, and something very interesting for me is to, all the names have meanings, and they're down in your, probably down in the footnotes. So as I'm reading, you'll see the footnotes, and you might want to track along with that. Just makes it more interesting. All right, here we go. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son. And she said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then, he, then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. 
And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter, and she called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, and she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's fun. Uh, What does that story have to do with us? I mean, if we're honest, that has to be our reaction, right? Because that is, that is a messy, strange story. Uh, it looks shockingly similar to a soap opera, as Leslie pointed out to me a couple weeks as we were <laughs> talking about it. And I want to note, two times in the book of Genesis, wives end up giving their servants to their husbands to make babies for them. And I've had the honor of preaching both those times. <laughs> Seems a little hard to believe that's a coincidence, Jeff, but <laughs> uh, all joking aside, uh, this story is, is truly rich. And while it's filled with drama and bickering and crazy stunts and lack of trust in God, uh, if we understand it well, it, it acts as a mirror for us, a place where we can see ourselves, where we can see and understand our own sins. And most importantly, it's a place where we get to see the sovereignty and goodness of our God. I can imagine the people of Israel listening to the book of Genesis after Moses has written it down and seeing exactly where they've come from. They all knew their tribe names as they wandered in the desert. And I I just imagine one guy turning to another and saying, Can you believe what your great, 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 great grandmother did? And yet, how often are our lives the same? I certainly don't have all the answers for the questions in my life or for the sufferings that I've experienced. But when I look back over my life, I see the hand of God continuing to work, guiding and directing through the good and the bad. One thing is certain as we look at this passage today. The plans of God in our life cannot be thwarted no matter how hard we try. In all the mess that this story entails, God is establishing the 12 tribes that will make up the nation of Israel. Through all this sin, he's still accomplishing his purpose of developing a nation that will bless the world through the Messiah. In the midst of the crazy details of this story, we see Judah is born, the ancestor of the great King David and ultimately of the Messiah. Judah isn't the firstborn, it's worth noting, and he's not the child of Jacob's beloved wife. But he is the one who God chooses to bring his Messiah through. As the story opens in Genesis 29:13, we've just seen that Jacob is lied to and manipulated by his father-in-law. Uh, instead of marrying the woman that he loves and he's been working for, uh, Laban, his father-in-law, sneaks Leah into the tent. And then after the honeymoon, Laban goes ahead and gives him Rachel as well. 
one thing to note for you uh, as you read your Bibles, that anytime you see a man starting to collect wives, it's a sign that a disaster is brewing. <laughs> Lamech in Genesis 4 marries two women, and really much the only other thing we know about him is that he sings a song about how prideful he is and that he killed somebody who offended him. Not a good situation. Abraham and Hagar in Genesis 16 try to accomplish God's will without following his plan, and it, it creates a horrible situation of oppression and disaster that lasts even to this day. Esau, that we just covered in Genesis 26 and 27, marries uh, wives who apparently make his parents miserable, and then when he finds that out, he marries another wife, thinking somehow that's going to make the situation better. And then later we have Solomon and his 300 plus wives that ultimately seem to lead him away from God and definitely lead to the collapse of David's iconic kingdom. It's what you might call a, a biblical motif or pattern. Multiple wives in the Bible is like a warning sign for the problems to come. And as Jeff said last week, it's never promoted by the biblical text. But as the story opens, we see something interesting going on. Something that should remind us of the character of our God. Verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The word hated here would probably be better translated as unloved. It's not so much that Jacob despised Leah, more he basically ignored her. His prize was Rachel, and he just was not all that interested in Leah. Yet from the opening of the story, we see that God sees Leah. And he grants her the ability to have children. And this is so consistent with the character of our God. He's the God of the oppressed and the broken. And this certainly isn't a new idea. It's not new information. This is a major theme from our Bible, that Yahweh is the God of the oppressed. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus starts his ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah, declaring these words about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or, or consider the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 as Jesus describes who his people are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a theme, a theme we see all over our Bibles. He is the God of the oppressed and the broken. And so the Lord opens Leah's womb. He allows her the ability to have children, while at this point, at least, he keeps that ability back from Rachel. To understand the significance of this, you have to look at it from their cultural standpoint. At that time, for a woman to not be able to have children was, would have been actually a point of shame for her. Not only would it be crushing disappointment, 
but it would have been a detail in her life that would have allowed others to look at her and judge her because to them they couldn't understand how a woman could have an identity other than in childbearing. And in this moment, God sees the downtrodden, brokenhearted, and is gracious to Leah. He sees the unloved one. He opens her womb. And and quickly, Leah starts having sons for Jacob. Remember what it was like to have multiple children in diapers? Yeah, Leah gets that, except without disposable diapers. And you might be thinking, David, you had it easy. I know what it's like to not have disposable diapers. But uh, she didn't have running water either. I don't even want to know what that would look like. (laughs) And yet she sees it as a huge blessing, which it is. For her first three sons, she hopes desperately that this will soften Jacob's heart towards her. Even if he doesn't love me for the way that I look, maybe he will love me because of the honor that these sons bring to me. And yet with each situation, or with each son, the situation seems to become more hopeless. She names her boys in this really raw way, as uh, Anna pointed out for us with each name relating to the hopes and fears in her heart at that moment. And each name actually forms a play on word with the statements that the mothers make around their births. Her eldest son is born, and she names him Reuben, which means see, a son, saying, the Lord has seen me and given me a son. She rightly attributes to God the gift of this child and then instantly turns her focus off of God, longing for that love from Jacob. And a second son is born to her. She names him Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heard, saying, the Lord has heard that I'm unloved. Third son comes along, and now it seems almost like she's given up hope of ever finding love in Jacob's eyes, and she names him Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached, saying, now at last, Jacob will become attached to me. Even if he doesn't love me, he will give me a place to belong. He'll he'll see me. He'll see my value. I've provided him with three sons. How can he not see that? Here, Jacob, meet your son attached. Now will you become attached to me? You have to wonder if she was hoping he would take a hint in that moment. Then at last, she gives birth to her fourth son, and it seems like her focus changes and her hope is in God in this moment. The God who's graciously given her these four boys. And she names him Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Now at last I rest in him. I may not be seen or heard by my husband, but God has seen me. God has heard me. God has blessed me. And this son is the one whom the Messiah will come through. Lowly beginnings of Jesus' life. Jesus' line comes from the unloved wife, and not even from her firstborn, from the fourth child. And then Leah stops having children for a time, and in this interlude, the plot thickens. Believe it or not, things get worse, not better. Leah has four sons now, and Rachel has zero, and they both know it. And so Rachel responds by lashing out. She forgets who God is, and she demands that Jacob solve her problems. In verse 1 of chapter 30, we read, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, 
She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's interesting. She uses the same language here that Esau uses when he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup and bread from Jacob. I need this now or I will die. If I don't have it, there's no point in going on. And unfortunately, I think this situation is pretty relatable. As the story goes on, we're going to see how, how this way of thinking drives crazy decision-making and, and self-deception as Rachel and Leah fight to be sovereign in their family's life. But at the most basic level, it's something we should all be able to see in ourselves. Because when we forget that God is in control, we will do anything to gain control. Uh, this isn't just true in certain parts of history. This is a truth that is always true. It's a reality no matter where you are or who you are. When we forget that God is in control, we're going to do anything we can to gain control of the situation. As a pastor, I can tell you the temptation is real. Uh, I want a youth group that's healthy and growing. I want a church that's healthy and growing. I want people to like me and respect me. And yet those shouldn't be my primary targets or goals. And in the couple, last couple years, as things have gotten crazy, that's become even harder so the temptation for me is to, to grab for power by either doing everything possible to make people happy or to respond with harsh coldness and pride when I face criticism or disagreements. Because when I forget the words of Matthew 16, 18, which says, I will build my church, Jesus is speaking here, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or in the parable that he gives in Mark 4 when he says, what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or, or what parable shall I use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. He's saying, my kingdom is like something that is unstoppable. It will grow from a very small starting point to something huge. When I forget those truths, when I forget to rest in that, forget that God is in control, forget that he is the one who grows his church, when I forget those things, it causes me to do whatever is necessary to try to accomplish my purposes in his church. I'm not sure what those situations are for each of you, but I am confident that every one of us has them. Maybe for you, when you look at your family, things haven't gone exactly as expected. Instead of loving and praying for your children, you try to manipulate and control them. Maybe your marriage hasn't been a delight that you've always dreamed it would be, and instead of leaning on God's call for marital faithfulness, you turn to discussions of divorce or, or pornography to control the situation. It couldn't be more clear in our politics right now, regardless of what side you affiliate with. 
The temptation is to just justify everything your candidate does or says rather than speaking openly and honestly about their strengths and their weaknesses. And I know this is really uncomfortable to talk about. But, but everyone experiences this struggle, this temptation to control the situation, to, to forget that God is in control and to fight for that control. Maybe the issues around masks and vaccines are so charged for you that you're willing to ignore the clear commandments of love and unity in the body to try to accomplish change. So you have to ask yourself this question. Where in my life does it look like I don't remember that God is in control? Where in my life does it look like I don't remember that God is in control? What causes you to panic, to get angry, to lash out? Where do I disregard the clear direction of Colossians 3, which says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then what, what causes you to, to lie, to justify your attempts to control things? We all do it, and this is exactly what, what Rachel does as she continues to show that she has forgotten the God who promised he would make Jacob into a mighty nation. After freaking out with Jacob, Jacob responds with anger, reminding her that he's not God. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. Rachel takes her servant, Bilhah, and in very direct language, she just says, like, have sex with her so I can have kids. And I don't want to minimize Rachel's suffering here. To see God's promises fulfilled through your rival can't be easy. Her suffering was real, and I would argue many of us have very real sufferings as well. And it's right to lament when we suffer, to mourn when we suffer. But it's not right to act in sin because of our suffering. Rachel, the one that Jacob loves, is desperate to be the mother of children for him. The one through whom God's promises are fulfilled in Jacob's life, and yet the truth is still there. Instead of trusting, she acts in a way that simply is not fitting for God's people. Instead of resting with confidence that God is in control of this situation, she takes into her matters into her own hand and exploits her servant so that she can have children. And just like his father, Abraham and Adam, Jacob goes along with the whole thing without missing a beat. Jacob gets Bilhah pregnant, and Rachel's thrilled. And here the self-deception gets really bad. She takes this son as her own, and she names him Dan, uh, which is the, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for judged. And then she says, God has vindicated me. He's judged, and he has seen that I am right. Rather than recognizing the mess that she's creating, she has the audacity to say that this child is proof that God has shown her to be right. 
You have to remember, Jacob taking extra wives can't be seen as a good thing through a biblical lens. Rachel's actions can't be justified here. And yet God can and absolutely will use the sins of Rachel as well as our own sins in his plan. Then after Bilhah has another son and Rachel names him Naphtali, which sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling, saying, I have wrestled mightily with my sister and I have won. It's clear. She still doesn't trust God. She still doesn't trust the promises. She still sees this as a competition. She's forgetting that God's in control. Ironically, God is still in control, even in her crazy attempts to grab for power. She looks stupid and duplicitous, but God is doing something intentional. God is building his people, even through the sins of Jacob and his wives. Leah, at this point, notices that the score is 4-2. to two. And uh, she is not ready to concede that Rachel is winning, but she is very aware of the fact that there have been two unanswered points. She doesn't like that. And so Leah pulls a play out of Rachel's playbook, and she gives her servant, Zilpha, to Jacob as a wife in order to have more children. And things go up according to plan for Leah. Zilpah gives birth to two sons, which Leah claims as her own. And the first she names Gad, which sounds like the Hebrew word for good fortune, saying good fortune has come to us. She's just happy to be winning again. Then Zilpah gives birth to a second son, and Leah names him Asher. Asher sounds like the word for happy, and she says, I am happy, and women will celebrate with me. Rachel, at this point, is still desperate to have her own children. It's clear from what she does next that she, she isn't satisfied by these children that she's had through her servant, and so while working out in the fields, Reuben, Leah's oldest son, finds some mandrakes. And he brings them home to his mom. Now for the rest of this inter interaction, interaction between these two to make sense, you have to understand what a mandrake is. Uh, so for a clear picture, let's look at the book of Song of Solomons. And if that <laughs> doesn't point you in the right direction, I don't know what will. Uh, I'm going to quote from the NLT here because I think it just gives these verses a little extra pop. A woman is speaking to her beloved here, and she says this, Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. There the mandrakes give off their fragrance, and the finest fruits are at our door. New delight as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. Many ancient authors referred to mandrakes as love apples. They were widely thought of as an aphrodisiac, and, and many people thought that they would help induce fertility. So, so Rachel here isn't excited merely about some plant that she can use. However, she thinks she's found the magic medicine, the solution that is going to get her a kid. And so she asks Leah for some. And, and Leah, remember, Leah, the one who stole Jacob from Rachel on their wedding night, responds by saying, you've stolen my husband, now are you going to steal these as well? The irony here is fantastic, and I understand the perspective she's coming from as feeling very unloved from Jacob, but I think the self-deception is still shocking. Two women, again, trying to play God. But Rachel doesn't, doesn't miss a beat here. Uh, she makes a deal. She says, Leah, I'll give you a night with Jacob in exchange for those mandrakes. And Leah's like, all right, sounds good. They, uh, these women who have treated their servants' bodies as tools to be used for their own purposes are now treating their husband the same way. 
Let's read in verse 16. You can see. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid with her that night. Leah doesn't even try to hide the reality of what's just happened. She says, I've hired you, I've paid, now come with me. And yet it's, it's really fascinating to me that even in these shameful dealings, God still sees and hears Leah's broken heart, and he grants her another son. 17 says, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Irony is rich here again. Rachel exchanges sex with Jacob for mandrakes and hope that the mandrakes will get her pregnant, and yet Leah gets pregnant. Rachel's still without children. Leah names her son Issachar, which sounds like the Hebrew word for wages or hire, saying God has given me my wage, my reward, and really locking in an interesting story in the life of Israel. She gives birth again, this time to Zebulun, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for honor, saying, God has rewarded me. Now my husband will honor me. She longs for the respect, love, and care from Jacob. And from our story, she never really seems to receive it. But all through the story, even as her choices are filled with sin and, and a clear lack of wisdom, she is loved by God. God continually sees her situation and he generously blesses her. He meets her in her suffering. He loves the unlovable one because that is who he is. Then we read in 21, afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. This is the only daughter of Jacob's that's mentioned here. And it's most likely because in a few chapters, we're going to see her again. And so we have some context for her. And as this section comes to an end, we see Rachel, who is finally broken and ready to receive from God. Rather than the Rachel from the beginning of the story we've seen, who demands that Jacob provide her with children, we see a Rachel who is prayerful rather than a Rachel who schemes through any means possible to gain control of the situation, we see a Rachel who is thankful for what is given. We read, Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. God hears and remembers Rachel's prayers in her moment of brokenness, and he responds. He opens her womb and gives her a son. The name Joseph means, may he add, while it sounds like the Hebrew word for taken away, and so it's this really neat play on words in this last name. Rachel says, God has taken away my shame. May he add yet another son. And if we fast forward a ways into the story, we see he will add one more son for Rachel. God meets Leah and Rachel in their darkest points. 
Not in the moments when they scheme and try to be God themselves, but in the moments when they remember and rely on God. The big idea we have to grasp here is this. Peace comes not through force, but through humbly trusting God. Peace comes not through force, but through humbly trusting God. If we, we're all tempted. We're all tempted to take the route of trying to make our life right by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and, and getting everything in order, making sure our life is right by whatever means necessary. But the gospel tells us a different story. The gospel starts with some blunt, unpleasant truth, and that's, doesn't matter how hard you try. You're simply not going to get your life in order. I mean, you might be able to look right on the outside, but then as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you'd simply be whitewashed tombs. Clean, beautiful, Instagram-friendly on the outside, all while our heart and soul are filled with rot and stench. God doesn't tell us to fight our way back to him. Like Rachel, we like to throw our weight around, try to invent creative solutions to fix our life. But Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, without Christ, we're dead because of our trespasses and our many sins. Salvation comes not through fighting desperately to prove our worthiness to God or to the world around us. Salvation doesn't come through fighting to establish your kingdom here on earth, even if it's a kingdom of really, really good things. Salvation comes from the blood of Jesus when we recognize our sin, when we recognize we're dead and that we need him. God invites us to experience his transformation. The prerequisite is that we understand our need. Mark 2, 17, Jesus says this, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I didn't come for people who have their life all together. I didn't come for people who knew how to put on the right show. I came for those who understand their need. That's what Jesus says in that statement. So my question for you is, how has your self-righteousness robbed you of the ability to see the goodness of your Savior? How has your need for control made it hard for you to accept the free gift of salvation? Ephesians goes on to tell us that those who are united with Christ have already been raised to new life. Not because of anything we've done, simply because we're united with him. Peace for us comes from resting in the finished work of Christ. Nothing you can ever do will restore that relationship. All you can do is come to him and tell him your desperate need. After I pray, we're going to sing the song before the throne of God above. I want to encourage you as we sing this, these words are so rich. As we sing this, use this time to reflect 
Ask God to reveal how you have fought with him for control. Repent of your lack of trust or your self-righteous attitudes. If you know him, use this as a time to make sure things are in order in that relationship. But if you've never placed your trust in Jesus before, I want to invite you to do that. There's no other true peace in this life than resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're in that place, talk to me or one of the elders or the person who brought you after the service. We'd love to pray with you. Jesus' forgiveness, grace, and peace are available for all who are willing to humbly trust in him alone for their salvation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are the author and creator of life. You are the one who has placed us here, and you are the one through whom we can be saved. I pray that you would help us to place our trust clearly in you and you alone for our salvation. Help us to repent from the sin that so easily sneaks in of trying to take over, trying to control the situation, trying to, to play God and help us to rest in you, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are sovereign, that you are doing something in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.